Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, I have an interview with screenwriter Tom Baum. Mr. Baum has written screenplays for Carney, Simon, The Manhattan Project, and The Cinder. The Cinder will be shown Saturday, January 11th, 2020, at the Downtown Public Library in the main auditorium on 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. More later, on to the interview. I'm showing a motion picture you wrote called The Cinder. It's an original screenplay. Could you discuss the origins of the idea? Well, the, the origins are complicated. Many years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine. I think we might have both been buzzed at the time. This was back in the early 60s. And he turned to me and said, you know, I think you're a sender. He was dividing people into two camps, senders and, and receivers. And that kind of stuck with me. And then the, the idea just kind of bubbled up. You know, I spent a lot of time with my mother when I was a kid. My father was in World War II. My mother was something of an agoraphobic. And for a while, you know, about six years, I was kind of unsocialized. I mean, I had friends in first grade. I was... Uh, I kind of kept to myself, even though later girls said that they had a crush on me. So I wasn't a complete nerd. But I kind of had to bootstrap myself. And, and the premise of the sender is that this guy has been kind of doted on by his mother to the point where she regards him as Jesus. Uh, now, my mother didn't treat me. My mother was a, you know, basically a good mother. But I think that experience of being alone in the house with her kind of fueled the idea. And then I went around pitching it to various people. And a, and a good friend of mine, Paul Gurian, uh, well, I don't want to introduce any spoilers here, but he kind of gave me the, the little twist on a, on a reverse telepath that kind of made the whole thing sing. And, uh, you know, pitched it at Fox, where the producer, Ed Feldman, had a deal. And Sherry Lansing, who was running, running the company at, at, the, at this time, let me turn off my phone, very sorry. That Sherry Lansing didn't quite get it, so went into turnaround. It was picked up by Paramount, and the rest is the movie. There were many uh, hitches along the way. Ed Feldman, the producer, wanted either Tom Cruise or Sean Penn for the role of the sender. They were young actors at the time, were just emerging. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was in charge of the project at Paramount, said, no, I, I want Jelko Ivanic, who uh, is a fine character actor. I thought he was very good in the movie. But Ed Feldman wrote his memoir and devoted a whole chapter to the fact that Jeffrey Katzenberg had nixed Tom Cruise and Sean Penn for the, for the role. Okay. You wrote The Fake Dream is a staple of storytelling and often a groaner. And when writing The Cinder, how did you prevent The Fake Dream from becoming a groaner? <laughs> well, I think because of the premise that the people who are receiving his dreams, his hallucinations, his feelings are actually in reality. So the dream is being realized on screen. We're not in the, you know, the typical movie dream is where somebody goes through some extreme thing and then wakes bolt upright in bed. So it's all, you know, and, and you kind of realize halfway into, oh yeah, this is, this must be a dream. This can't really be happening. So John Hughes did it very well in a movie. Um, she's having a baby where what's being presented is absolute reality. Kevin Bacon is, is in his uh, apartment, and this girl that he has kind of met and has a little crush on suddenly appears to him, and he wonders, what are you doing in my house? 
And then Elizabeth McGovern comes down the stairs, oh, oh, darling, you're, you're dreaming again. But up to that point, it seems absolutely plausible that what dreams do, I and mean, dreams are plausible when you're having them. And I think the fact that the people who are on the receiving end of his dreams are experiencing them makes them more plausible and, and, and not groaners. Okay. Did you do any research into the study of dreams? And if so, how did you apply it to the screenplay? You know, I remember going to the UCLA library. And, you know, I don't remember what I read up on. I'd been in psychoanalysis for, for many years and done a lot of reading in psychoanalysis. So I was kind of familiar with the territory. I don't remember doing any specific research on it. I remember meeting with a a neurosurgeon on a different project. It's possible that I, uh, I remember going up to meet with Walter Murch up in Bolinas, but I don't remember what specifically I was looking for in terms of research. I think I was just guided by trying to make the dreams as interesting and exciting and as thrillerish as possible. Okay. This was the first feature of uh, director Roger Christensen, who had won an Oscar for set decoration for Star Wars. Could you discuss how you collaborated with the first-time director? Yeah. Um, Roger Christian was recommended by Katzenberg because he had been an art director for Lucas. We didn't really collaborate at all because the picture was really shot in England on what was called the Edie plan. It was a, way, a money-saving uh, device in those days. Nothing really changed in the script. We didn't have any script meetings. Roger, uh, uh, I, I never really met with him except to meet with Katzenberg the day that uh, Katzenberg greenlit the picture. He had very high hopes for it, Roger did. He thought it was going to be, you know, one of the top ten grossing films of that year. And it was actually a favorite movie of Charles Bludorn, who was uh, head of golf and western at the time that owned Paramount. And um, so I didn't really interact with him very much. Neither did the actors. The actors uh, kind of complained that he never worked with them as if he were sending his direction in from the sidelines. He took a different approach to the movie, which I think is quite a good movie. But um, after a couple of weeks, the dailies were looking a little masterpiece theater, a little, little pokey. And uh, he was called on the carpet by Ed Feldman, the producer. And, and Roger said, well, you know, I'm not making a John Carpenter picture, I'm making an Ingmar Bergman picture, which was not what exactly uh, people were looking for, but the movie looks good, and, you know, made a bunch of 10 best lists, and, and actually dropped it at the box office. The Paramount pulled it after the first weekend, it was playing to $100 houses, and it was only later that it became a, a kind of a cult film. The Cinder and also your novels Out of Body and We Remember Everything have characters with special abilities, and What's that attraction of that type of character? I think, uh, you know, I read a lot of science fiction when I was a teenager. My father was a huge science fiction fan. He had all the editions of uh, SF and fantasy. I think that's probably guided me in that direction. Maybe the fact that I was kind of doted on as a kid was a kind of a child prodigy gave me a kind of grandiosity, maybe steered me in that direction as well, the basis of, of Out of Body is sort of based on an experience I had writing a uh, TV movie about a woman with multiple personality disorder uh, who had, you know, 52 different alters. So that kind of figured into the plot. And then it's a very good question. Why? Because I'm not a, a believer in the paranormal, per se, but I've done a lot of... Um, 
I, I, you know, it's a, very, it's a very good question I don't have a good answer for. I'm not a big fan of Hocus Pocus in, in movies per se, but I seem to be uh, drawn toward it. Not, not all the time. I mean, my first hardcover novel that's published by Dial is a, it's about a guy who um, meets himself in parallel worlds. He, he passes through these wormholes and meets himself in various guises, various things that he's become in different different worlds. So that, too, has a kind of paranormal aspect. But that, I think, was based on my science fiction reading. And I was always a big fan of Theodore Sturgeon's More Than Human, which is about a group of people, who, each of whom has a special ability. One can teleport, another can, is a telepath, uh, another can make objects move, and they all get together separately. They have no particular power. That They're a disorganized group until they get together, and then they become more than human as, as a group, as a gestalt. So that, that was one of my favorite books as, as a teenager. So I think all that kind of pushed me in that direction. Okay. As we're talking about the sender, it does have a cult following. Arrow Blu-ray is putting out a special edition on Blu-ray, and it's a favorite of Quentin Tarantino, and I liked it. I'm showing it this January. How do you feel about the final product? You know, I haven't seen it in a while, but I did look at the interview that I did for the Blu-ray, and I saw the exercise. I thought it really good. I don't actually own a uh, Blu-ray of, of the movie. I, I should get one. I can't play the one, the British one, because it's incompatible with my system. Yeah, it is. It's Quentin Tarantino's favorite horror film of 1984, I think. And he once came in for an interview with my wife, who was a very successful movie and TV producer. And this is back after Reservoir Dogs. She had him in for a meeting. And he said, are you any relation to Tom Baum? I said, yeah, I, I'm married to him. I said, well, you know, The Sender is one of my favorite movies. And they showed a different version when it appeared on NBC. So I cut together a third version. And if Tom will autograph my copy of the novelization of Carney, um, I'll give him a copy of what I cut together. Well, you know, we've never seen that thing that he cut together, but, you know, I'm, I'm still telling the story. It was on uh, Film Comments' 10 best list, I think, with nine Japanese movies. And... Um, Wes Craven and I became writing partners, and it was on the basis of The Sender. He'd seen The Sender, which I was sort of grandiosely claimed was the first of the genre, even before Nightmare on Elm Street. And then when I interviewed to, to write and direct, uh, I think, Nightmare 6, the guy who came in to give me water said, you wrote The, the Sender, right? That's kind of the forerunner of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So my grandiosity was confirmed. Okay. You've written ABC After School Specials, an animated feature, Hugo the Hippo, and a young adult novel, It Looks Alive to Me. When you write for young adults, what's your approach to writing for young adults as opposed to adults? Well, keep it simpler. Keep the sentences shorter. Fewer uh, relative clauses. And put a teenager at the center of the story. It's just a kind of an instinct. I mean, I... It looks alive to me. It was about the Museum of Natural History coming to life. I lived across as a very young child and was always fascinated by the museum. And it just, uh, I guess when I was a kid, I thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole place came to life? And that's what I wrote. So it did not become the Night at the Museum movie, but it was bought for the movies back then. I, um, If the premise 
favors a, a kid, then, well, back, you know, back in the day, before there were a lot of kid movies, there was a very strict division between YA and adult fiction. Right now, there's an overlap. Uh, the um, there's a great crossover between the two genres. So I think it's all the whole line has been blurred. Okay, I'm a huge fan of the movie Carney you mentioned earlier. And how did you go from writing like Hugo the Hippo and After School Special to writing Carney? I think Carney actually predated. The first draft of Carney predated Hugo the Hippo. Robert Kaler, who had done a documentary about the roller derby called Derby, approached me, and I did a draft uh, with a package. It turned out Robert Mitchum and Harvey Keitel and Jodie Foster were going to do the movie. And that, we never could get the financing. And then Robbie Robertson became interested. So it was, a, I always went back and forth. I mean, the first, uh, I guess the first script I ever wrote that never got made was about a, a kid, actually, the, the kid who turns up in the museum book. It was, uh, Bob Taylor just brought me a lot of footage that he had shot about a carnival, and I was intrigued by it. And it's an exotic locale. So um, I was just drawn to it. it I've always gone, kind of gone back and forth between the two, and in a sense, anything that came my way in those days, I would do, because I had just left NBC, where I was a speechwriter for management, and I needed all the work I could get, so I, I didn't say no to anything. I, I was writing copy lines for movies at $25 a shot, and promos, and cutting trailers, and anything to make a living, including short stories that I wrote for Playboy, so all over the lot, really. A lot of those Playboy stories had supernatural premises as well. So again, I think that had its roots in my adolescence. You just mentioned that you used to cut and write for trailers, and I found that out doing my research. And what do you think makes a good trailer? You know, I think a trailer that tells you the premise is very helpful. I noticed when I was writing these and cutting these trailers, there was a lot of copy. There were voiceovers. The voiceover has disappeared from trailers. It's all footage, and it's all cut together in a particular way with an accelerating pace. And it's just, the, all they're doing in trailers is just selling the excitement, the actors. It's, it's all very impressionistic these days. Back then, back in the 70s, when I was writing them, the trailers told you what the movie was about, told you what the premise was without giving away any any spoilers or, or the, as I said, the best jokes. So I don't know quite what makes a good trailer. Often I'll, I'll sit with my wife and we'll checking out a movie we might want to see and we'll finish watching. We say, what, what was the movie about? We have no idea what it was about. We're just getting sort of a hint of the mood and who's in it. And you really end up trying to infer what the thing is about. So what I was doing as a trailer maker was much different from what's going on today. What, can you remember what some of the trailers you wrote for or cut or made? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one was for Glenn and Rand to go to the city, which was this movie by um, by Jim McBride. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. He had done a movie, David Holtzman's Diary, which was, at the time, and for many years, my favorite movie that I'd ever seen in my life. It's still very high up on my all-time list. And I don't know who the distributor was, but I... We're we're moving from our house to an apartment. I've been looking through all sorts of 
memorabilia. I came upon a trailer that I wrote for Glenn and Randa, Go to the City. And in it, I, I said the latest movie from the best new American movie director, Jim McBride. This was at a time before my wife and I, Carol and I, became friends with Jim McBride. So it was sort of a treat to run across it and send it to Jim because it was the sincerest form of flattery to have written that before I even knew the guy. We worked for a company, um, Allied Artists. They distributed Tick, 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 Bloody Mama. Um, what else did I just see? There was another company, a kind of low-end distribution company that imported these kind of these French movies, not the kinds of movies that play in art houses, but sort of low-end French movies. And I remember one of them, we were ordered to sell the movie as a thriller. And it was a sort of a, an erotic French movie that had no thrills in it. It had one scene with somebody threatening somebody else with a pair of scissors. And all we could do with the, with the trailer was to, was to shoot, take different parts of the movie and do fade-ins and fade-outs. And we showed the scissors several times in an attempt to sell the thing as a thriller. I'm just trying to think of any other movies that we did. Uh, I should be able to remember because I came across a lot of these uh, scripts that I wrote for them. But right off the top of my head, I can't remember anymore. Okay. Well, let's go back to Carney. And you said uh, you looked at a lot of footage that Robert Taylor showed you. And I was just wondering, what else research did you do about Carney life for writing the movie Carney? Well, we had a technical advisor, Danny Dombrowski, who had been a Carney came from a Carney family, so he was a terrific resource for it. Robbie Robertson, Bob Kaler, and Danny and I went down to uh, Macon, Georgia on a research trip, kind of hung out at a carnival for a while. I remember getting shortchanged at one of the joints by one of the Carneys, and I got all excited because I was experiencing firsthand uh, Carneys taking advantage of marks. Bob's footage was amazing. I mean, he just spent hours and hours and hours with these various carnies, and, and many of them became characters in the movie. So that was invaluable. Kaler's footage was really the major research that I did for it. And I did some reading. I remember going to the UCLA library and, and trying to read up on carnivals. There were books about the carnival that I read. Uh, I think Herbert Gold wrote a novel about a carnival. So there was a certain amount of, of reading that I did about it. But again, Bob Taylor's video footage was, was, was key. Okay. I want to ask about the beginning of Carney, and that's the scene in which Gary Busey is putting the makeup over the credit title um, sequence. And was that scripted, or did that something just came up? It was in the... It was sort of scripted on one page. It's funny you bring this up, and I have to... My hat is off to you. You've done amazing research. He, I remember it took nine minutes to shoot that scene. I was just telling my son just a couple of nights ago that what happened with that scene. He just, he just went for it and took a lot of time putting on the makeup. I was remember saying to um, one of the crew members, this is never going to cut together. This thing is taking nine minutes, and it was all in one take, I remember. But it was a great scene. Uh, it's, um, uh, <laughs> my son the other night said he thought that the, there's a scene apparently in Joker, the Joaquin Phoenix movie that's coming out, where he's applying this makeup. And he says, he said, I wonder if that uh, was inspired by the scene in Carney with Gary Busey putting on the makeup. 
it was Gary's idea to swipe his hand at the uh, the light bulbs and causing it to swing like the light bulb in the in that uh, climactic scene in in Psycho. And Gary used to joke about that scene, calling it uh, Psycho Homo Bozo. Okay. Also, back to your early skipping around here, you stated that you wrote for underground movies, and I'm just curious, what did you write? Well, I actually wrote and directed them. Uh, it was an art director. I was a copywriter. I started out my first real job was as a copywriter at NBC, and an art director named Dennis Lowe. He had a uh, bold US 16 millimeter camera, and he was the guy who actually got me into movies. There was an article in Film Culture magazine. It was what became Andrew Saris's American directorial chronology. And it was an eye-opener. And I didn't really know what a director was. I didn't know what a shot was. Uh, and Dennis really introduced me to all this, introduced me to Godard and Truffaut and so forth. And we started to work together. And I had ideas for a, a weird sort of movie. It's really hard to describe. The Kansas City Gork. I had seen a routine. A guy took some coat hangers and stuck them up his sleeves and did a dance with a cane to me and my shadow. And I thought, well, maybe this this will make some kind of weird underground movie. So we shot it in my father's doctor office and set it to the Beatles uh, version of Kansas City. And uh, and we enlisted uh, Betty Aberlin, who later became Lady Aberlin on Mr. Rogers, to, um, to play the nurse. We were just kind of fooling around to begin with, but uh, then there was another movie we were commissioned by uh, Disco Cheetah to do a kind of promotional footage for the discotheque. So Dennis and uh, one of the other art directors shot a bunch of footage at the disco, and because we had access to the NBC promotional footage, we intercut it with a lot of the promotional footage for the different shows and set it to the Beatles paperback writer. And, you know, we got paid by Cheetah, and then the USIA bought it for uh, international distribution to show, uh, I don't know, what America was like. A very strange notion, but uh, we weren't about to say no. And then there was another one uh, called The Catman's Primal Scene, which was based on a a routine that I saw a guy do at a party where he, uh, and it's kind of hard to describe, he, he, he talked in this kind of guttural voice about the first time he ever saw his parents in the act of love. And we recorded him doing that at a party, and then intercut it with footage of me and my wife getting ready for bed, and then uh, another guy mimicking the things that the the guy was saying, crawling across the floor to his parents' bedroom. It wasn't uh, pornographic in any sense. There was no nudity. And it was all kind of lighthearted and strange, uh, and, and also set to music in part. So those were three very strange movies that were um, showed around the Gate Theater in New York and the Chicago Film Archives, and and they were recently uh, unearthed by a guy there and shown at the uh, Steven Spielberg Theater at the Egyptian, you know, this this small theater for independent movies. People, there's still some interest in these things, apparently. So I hadn't seen it for years and years and years, and they had just kind of disappeared. But it was my film education, really, making these movies and, and my relationship with Dennis Lowe. Okay. I was watching a movie you co-wrote with Marshall Brickman called The Manhattan Project, and in which a high school science whiz kid builds an atomic bomb. And I was impressed with the detail of the movie about making the atom bomb and 
while writing the script with Marshall Brickman, did you ever think, gee, this is possible? Yeah, you know, the origin of that, Marshall had read an article in the New Yorker magazine by Telford Taylor, I believe, about how nuclear material was available for theft all around the U.S. and what a danger this posed. And Marshall wanted to make a movie about this. And I had written this young adult novel about the Museum of Natural History coming to life. And I thought, well, maybe it would be better if it was a kid who made a bomb for a science project. And Marshall said, yeah, that's good. Great. We'll do it. So we set out to write it. We did some research. He talked, I believe, with with Telford Taylor himself at one point. You know, we read up on the on nuclear devices and, and the threat that they posed and if they got into the hands of terrorists and so forth. That I think Marshall did the bulk of the research on that, as, as I recall. And then we got together, and I worked with Marshall much as he worked with Woody Allen. We walk around together for a while, and then Marshall would go off and write the script, and I would make some changes. But it was mostly conceived in, in the walking around process, the structure, the, the various scenes. And uh, apparently that's the way Marshall and, and Woody um, used to work. They'd walk around together, come up with ideas, and then Woody would go off and write the first draft, and then they would collaborate and so forth. So Marshall is, a, you know, remains a very good friend. And uh, we worked on one other movie together called Simon. We worked at the story together, and he went away and wrote the script and, and directed it, and I, I got story credit on that. Okay. Well, you co-created a television show with Wes Craven called Nightmare Cafe. You mentioned it earlier, and could you talk about coming up with the intriguing concept of the show? And also, um, why did you think it was not successful? Good question. Actually, the basic idea was not mine, and it wasn't Wes's. It was his son, Jonathan, and his writing partner. I'm afraid his, I'm blanking on his name. They brought it to Wes. And Wes had seen the sender and got in touch with me, and we became partners. And we co-wrote the pilot, which made us the creators. But really, it was a, a collaboration among the four of us, because Jonathan and his partner had come up with the idea. Why didn't it succeed? Well, the, we could say it was the time slot on Friday night at 10 o'clock, but I, I, that's not really the case. It was a very ambitious idea. It was a an anthology series with continuing characters. And that was a hard thing to pull off. I don't think we we quite found what the series was about. And we had a showrunner who had come out of the Michael Mann uh, stable of just kind of what one of the producers of Nightmare Cafe called macho sentimentality. And he hadn't really was not... Um, was not a supernatural kind of guy. He wasn't really with the program. And he was trying to steer it in a different direction. I think it had a question of too many cooks, maybe too ambitious, too complicated a premise. And Wes, you know, has a fantastic imagination, would just throw everything into any, any episode that he could and, and came up with amazing stuff. I think, you know, it did have its fans, but it didn't have a clear enough premise. And plus the fact that it it was an anthology series, basically, set in this cafe with the continuing characters, and and one of whom, uh, Robert Englund, played the guy Blackie, who was always interfering with the the attempts of the other two characters 
to give people a second chance. I mean, yeah, that was the, the premise. Everybody gets a second chance when they come to the Nightmare Cafe. So it was, it was, uh, it was too many premises. It sort of reminds me of the um, Jorge Luis Borges had this principle that I often invoke when I teach. He said that H.G. Wells wrote one novella about an invisible man and a second novella about Martians attacking the Earth. What he didn't write was a novel about invisible Martians attacking the Earth. One premise is enough, and I think Nightmare Cafe had too many. Okay. You wrote six episodes for an anthology show called The Hitchhiker on HBO, and at the time, HBO was not the powerhouse that it is now, and this was in the mid-'80s. And what was it like to work on HBO during the early days? Well, it was great. They very little interference. The series had been conceived as Twilight Zone with TNA, and it was very much about you know the money shot. The, 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 and HBO was had a was really about in those days showing things that couldn't be shown on television, nudity and, and so forth. And I was not a fan of the first couple of years, which were really in softcore hell. But Louis Chesler, the producer. And Richard Rothstein, who was the story editor, the, the showrunner, they kind of steered it in, in a more serious direction. And I had a great experience there. Uh, those were really fun to do. It attracted a lot of top-line actors. And I even got to direct one of the ones that I wrote, which I thought turned out you know, very well and, and actually put me on the list to direct. I tried to follow up after getting ace nominations for writing and directing that particular episode. And always regretted not following up more aggressively, and it was only when I became a playwright in the, the last 10 years that I got over that, that sense of regret. Of, but HBO was very hands-off about these uh, scripts. Many of the ideas in the first year that I worked on it came from uh, Richard Ross. I think I was the only guy who came up with uh, an original premise that got by them. So uh, it was really a happy experience. Okay. I want to talk about one episode you wrote uh, called WGOD, um, and it was directed by Mike Hodges, who also directed Git Carter and Croupier and Flash Gordon. And was there a collaboration between you two? No, I don't think I ever was in a room. I may have had a phone conversation with Mike Hodges. I have dim recollection of that. There was mostly these were shot without a lot of director input. The scripts were shot by the director and not many blue pages, as they say, or used to say. So I don't remember on any of the ones that I wrote ever collaborating with the director. Even I remember being around. No, I, I wasn't there. They were shot in Vancouver, and I didn't, I didn't go to Vancouver until I directed mine. So there wasn't a lot of writer-director collaboration. It was, it was very much driven by Richard Rothstein, the story editor. And the things, again, were, were shot pretty much as written. Okay. Well, talking about what you wrote and directed, you wrote the, and directed the Hitchhiker episode made for each other, and I was just wondering, why didn't you try to direct more? Well, that, I did try. I got an offer to direct an episode of Private Eye, which, again, came out of that Michael Mann. I forget the guy, other guy, Anthony Yerkes, who was it? And it was going to go, it was going to be shot in, like, six days. 
And I, they sent me the script, and I really couldn't make head or tail of the script. And I was a, a little gun-shy. I thought what authority I had on the set of Made for Each Other flowed mostly from the fact that I'd written the script and you know, got to meet with Bill Paxton and Bud Cord and, and, and kind of get to know them and, and develop a rapport with them. Here I would be parachuted into a situation where the actors knew much more than I did, and I would be just, you know, kind of a page turner, kind of faking it, and I passed on that. And I was attached to write and direct a Fox TV movie about runaways, people who run away from various towns and end up in L.A. and, and uh, on the streets or in these halfway houses. And I did quite a bit of research for that, gave Fox a treatment, and... Uh, as I recall, they sort of passed on the treatment and the whole thing fell apart. I was also attached to direct, write and direct a remake of A Kiss Before Dying with a couple of producers who turned out not to own the property. So that fell to the wayside. I kind of attached myself to a script I wrote called Louie Louie about a guy who Xeroxes himself. Um, and that kind of got in the way of the movie getting made. So gradually, I just let it slip. I, I'm not sure I was ever temperamentally suited to directing full-length movies. I think, you know, I'm basically a guy who likes to stay at home and write. So although I, I enjoyed the experience on, on Made for Each Other and wanted to do more of it, not sure it was, it was my calling. Okay. Um, this is just something you said earlier. Could you tell me what, since I work in the library, what are some of your other favorite science fiction books growing up? Uh, let's see. I think I was late to Philip K. Dick. I was a huge Philip K. Dick fan, but I don't remember reading much of him as, as a teenager. Was it Frederick Pohl who wrote Brainwave? It was about the Earth passes through a, a radiation belt which increases uh, everybody's IQ chimpanzees turn out to have human IQ, and then I forget what happens in the plot, but then eventually Earth passes out of the belt and everybody regresses. And What were some of the others that I, that I loved, other than the Theodore Sturgeon? I was not a big space opera fan. I, didn't, I wasn't a big Isaac Asimov fan, but a lot of short stories. Who were the guys that I really liked back in the day? Henry Kuttner. I think there was something in a, in a Henry Kuttner novel that had to do with passages at arches, which were portals into a different world, which I borrowed the idea for counterparts from. But apart from that, I'm, I'm kind of blanking. Okay. This is, before we, I let you go, I read your book, It Looks Alive to Me, and um, it's got your photograph in the back, and it's by Robert Kaler. That's the same Robert Kaler directed <laughs> Carney? Yeah, it's the same Robert Kaler, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your research and, and your questions. It was fabulous. All right. Thank you. Have a good day, sir. You too. I would like to thank Tom Baum for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium to see The Cinder, which will be shown Saturday, January 11th, 2020 at 2 p.m. The Cinder is rated R. Today's music is from The Cinder by Trevor Jones. Mm-hmm.